Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. U.S. news media are full of armchair generals. They talk about weapons of war like they're Hot Wheels, and they have lots of thoughts about how we could have got them here and we should have got them there. The price of admission to elite media debate is acceptance that the U.S., alone among nations, has the right to force change in other countries' governments. And when this results, as it always does, in death and destruction, media's job entails telling the public that that's not just necessary, but somehow good. Not to put too fine a point on it. All of this and more is on display in coverage of the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, along with, as usual, some exceptional countervailing reporting. Ending the U.S. occupation could mean a new day for the Afghan people, but with the anniversary of September 11th coming up, it looks like U.S. media consumers may need not a broom but a shovel to deal with the self-aggrandizing, history-erasing misinformation headed our way. We'll prepare ourselves with insights on Afghanistan from Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, and from Matthew Ho, senior fellow with the Center for International Policy. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Many people in this country and around the world have long been calling for the U.S. military to get out of Afghanistan. Many, of course, the same people who opposed the 2001 invasion in the first place. Now that President Biden has made that call, what might happen next? What responsibilities does the U.S. still have in and to Afghanistan? And what can we hope for in terms of the possibility of the Afghan people taking charge of their future? We're joined now by Phyllis Bennis. She directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is author of Before and After, U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terrorism and Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer, among other titles. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Phyllis Bennis. Great to be with you, Janine. Well, as events in Afghanistan are evolving quickly, I will note that we're recording Tuesday, August 17th. And I would start, just as you do in your new piece for The Nation, we have a lot of questions right now about what's going to happen. But what can we say about what we're seeing in Afghanistan and what may come next? I think that it's very important that we recognize the significance of pulling out U.S. troops and the limitation of pulling out U.S. troops. The significance is that this was a war that never should have been waged. The horrific crimes of 9-11 should have been dealt with as international horrific crimes and not as the beginning of a global war in which the U.S. interests would be asserted as taking precedence over the interests of every other country, every other people in the world. 
And once it started, it should have ended. Once it was going for a year, it should have ended. Once it went for 10 years, it should have ended. It's finally ending now, almost 20 years on. That's way too late, but it's important that it is ending the U.S. role. The limitation of that is that this does not end the struggle and potentially even war in Afghanistan. The war is going to be very different without the United States, but people in Afghanistan have a very difficult time ahead. Certainly the people who are afraid of what Taliban control could mean for them and their families personally because of either their real or perceived connections to the U.S. military, to U.S. intelligence, and to other perceived and accurately known as Western institutions, whether it's journalists, whether it's non-governmental organizations, all kinds of people, women who fought for women's rights over these last 20 years, many of them are very afraid of being linked to the U.S. occupation and targeted for that, as well as being targeted for being strong women with an independent streak at all. So there's a lot of problems ahead for Afghans. Pulling out the U.S. troops, I think, was the most important part of it. Well, it's been odd to see some in the U.S. news media lay the entire state of affairs at Biden's feet, as though everything was going great somehow until he mucked it up. But you explain in The Nation that there are things that we can and should be demanding of the U.S. government now. We can't undo what the U.S. military did to the Afghan people. But there are things that we can be talking about right now in terms of accountability. Absolutely. And I think accountability to the people of Afghanistan should remain our focal point for this next period. First, the number of refugees, asylum seekers, should be massively expanded. We have to expand the categories of people who are allowed in. And crucially, we have to make it easier, make it possible for people to apply for and get that protection. It's a huge challenge now because people that are not already in Kabul may not be able to get to Kabul anytime soon. People in Kabul may have trouble getting to the airport. But it's also made harder because the United States, unlike every other country, is not simply opening their borders to people who clearly need protection. They're demanding that people still fill out all kinds of paperwork that may not be possible right now. Mm -hmm. So we need to demand that they make it easier, that they make it possible for people to apply for asylum, for refugee status, for protection in any way that it becomes necessary. Second, we need to be sure that the bombing raids, both of planes, including B-52s, and drones that have been carried out in recent weeks have stopped and that the end of those bombing raids is permanent. The same for the CIA squads that are running death squads throughout Afghanistan. That should be permanently ended, not just at this moment ready to come back from over the horizon. Third, we need to be supporting UN and whatever other international efforts emerge to create and defend a humanitarian corridor guaranteeing safe passage for humanitarian workers to get people in and to get access to water, food, shelter, medicine for people that are living now in Kabul and other places who have been 
displaced from their homes, can't get to their homes, and are stuck wherever they are in desperate need. That has to include funding a massive program for COVID assistance. We've all seen the the videos, the photographs of people crowded together, living on streets in Kabul, etc. And these people are smack in the middle of a rising number of COVID cases already. This could become a, another disaster facing people in Afghanistan. And finally, finally, Janine, I think it's so crucial that even though it will be a long process to assess what was wrong about this war from the beginning, why it was so easy for people to support this war and why people in positions of power consistently supported it with so few exceptions, like that of the heroic congressional representative from California, Barbara Lee, who was the only member of Congress to vote against the authorization for this war. That's going to be a long process, but in the meantime, we need to begin the process of acknowledging U.S. responsibility for the impact of the war, the devastation that the war brought to the people of Afghanistan. We can work on that for years, the issues of reparations and compensation, questions of apology. But right now, we need to move towards acknowledgement that there was a U.S. responsibility for what faced the people of Afghanistan during these 20 years. Well, let me just ask you finally, media have a lot to account for, I think, here. News media just have a war frame of mind, if you put it that way. Diplomacy, it seems, is almost treated as a weakness. And so that's exactly the kind of conversation we need to be having. But I fear that folks are going to be poorly served if we're looking for that kind of healthy conversation about the future for the Afghan people in mainstream news media. I think you're right that the news media, the mainstream news media needs to have some serious conversations, and we in the public need to demand those answers for the role that the media played for 20 years. From the moment of the 9-11 attacks, assuming the legitimacy of war as an answer, I do have a small hint of optimism based on the coverage of the last few days, because there has already started to be some looking back. There's been a couple of articles, not a lot, but you do see hints in the Washington Post and the New York Times and on NPR. Not enough, not nearly enough, but the beginnings of a more self-critical look, not necessarily at the media itself, but at the assumptions that were at the root of how the media covered all this, which comes back to the question of the legitimacy of war as the dominant component of how U.S. influence around the world is expressed. And to the degree that we can force that conversation to go further, that will be one of the key things to prevent something like this horrific invasion, occupation, 20-year oppression of Afghanistan that our country was involved with from ever happening again. We've been speaking with Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies. Her article, Washington's War in Afghanistan is Over, What Happens Now, appears on thenation.com. Thank you, Phyllis Bennis, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Here is the New York Times August 15th editorial, quote, 
The war in Afghanistan began in response by the United States and its NATO allies to the attacks of September 11, 2001, as an operation to deny al-Qaeda sanctuary in a country run by the Taliban. How it evolved into a two-decade nation-building project in which as many as 140,000 troops under American command were deployed at one time is a story of mission creep and hubris, but also of the enduring American faith in the values of freedom and democracy. Close quote. A graduate thesis might be devoted to unpacking the assumption, euphemism, denial, just the sheer Kool-Aid in that little story. But suffice to say, the fact that this is the country's paper of record telling anyone curious how best to understand what they're currently seeing unfold in Afghanistan is troubling. There are other ways to understand. They involve listening to other voices than those corporate media tend to foreground. If we'd been hearing those other voices all along, who knows how different today's conversation would be. Matthew Ho is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Network. He joins us now by phone from North Carolina. Welcome to Counterspin, Matthew Ho. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. We read about a 20-year war, and I understand that, but I wonder if you would take a minute to draw a bigger historical picture, because it's meaningful for the people who should be at the center of the story and yet somehow never quite really are, namely the Afghan people. This is more than 20 years for them. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing up this point. I think the commentary that puts this war in a 20-year perspective is indicative of why the United States has failed so miserably in Afghanistan. The United States has wanted this war in Afghanistan to be about al-Qaeda and 9-11. And certainly that's what Joe Biden tried to do in his remarks the other day. And the reality is, is that this is a living legacy of the Cold War. This war begins, I think maybe you could fairly start it in 1973 when the king is deposed. And since that time, the same year I was born, 48 years ago, there has been nothing but political chaos or violence, war in Afghanistan. And majority of that has been instigated to a degree and supported greatly by outside nations, chiefly the United States. And what makes the tragedy about Afghanistan even more tragic is so much of this war, so much of this violence is suffering, it's got almost nothing to do with the Afghans themselves. Right. The United States and the Soviet Union in the 1970s look at Afghanistan as a forum of competition. Who is going to get Afghanistan to reflect their color on the map? Right. Is Afghanistan going to be blue or is it going to be red? And so I think that's why you have these circumstances that unfold from that. In 1979, before the Soviet Union invades, the Carter administration launches a policy of supporting Islamist rebel groups in Afghanistan because in Zygmunt Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, in Brzezinski's vision, the idea would be that we would 
utilize these Islamist rebel groups in Afghanistan to cause problems in Afghanistan, to bait the Soviet Union into invasion, and give them their own Vietnam. And this occurs six months before the Soviet Union invades. And so the Soviet Union does that. And the Soviet Union, of course, is certainly responsible for its actions. And one of the things we know about the Soviet Union's decision to invade Afghanistan in 1979 was that it was in many ways influenced by the American removal from Iran. You could find this in discussions from the notes from the Politburo from the time. But the Soviets are worried that because the Americans lost their bases in Iran, that the Americans are now going to go into Afghanistan. So even from this vantage point, you're right, I mean, 40-some-odd years later, you can still see in our current decision-making how little of the United States' decisions about Afghanistan have been about the Afghans themselves. Certainly, 9-11, where you're talking about an organization of less than 400 people, al-Qaeda, 400 people worldwide, 9-11 attacks where none of the hijackers were Afghans. Almost all of the planning, the training, the support for the attacks came from Pakistan, from Germany. The hijackers met in Malaysia and in, in Spain, possibly in the UAE or, or Qatar. And then, of course, we had hijackers here in this country for 18 months before the attacks. The most important training the hijackers received were in American flight academies and martial arts academies. But somehow it's about Afghanistan. And the United States, of course, is not the only one who is, is culpable in this. The Pakistanis, the Iranians, Indians, the Russians, etc., many different nations have been playing, we used to be called in the 19th century, the great game, right. you know, treating Afghanistan as if it is a real-life version of the game Risk. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the Afghan people have just endured unbelievable suffering because of that. Well, and I was actually just going to invoke the game Risk. It's all like an abstract chess game, as it were, and U.S. media sort of present it that way and had no hesitancy to sort of move the goalposts. Well, we're punishing al-Qaeda. No, we're saving women. No, we're building a nation state. You know, it's as if the, the goal doesn't matter because you're just supposed to get behind whatever the U.S. is doing. Well, right now, U.S. media news consumers are seeing chaos and calamity and it's being reported as being caused by the withdrawal of U.S. troops. So a, a binary mindset says, no, I don't like chaos. Put the troops back. Unfortunately, the general run of media coverage doesn't really stay at a level much more subtle than that. So I, I want to ask you, how do we gird ourselves? What should we be holding in mind as this very war-framed conversation swirls around us in the coming days and weeks? I think we want to think that the events that are occurring right now, we have complete agency over, mm -hmm. and they're not influenced by the past, not influenced by history. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very much aware of that. So in the case of as you hear people say, why we shouldn't leave Afghanistan, I wish I was joking about this, but you see commentators, serious commentators, as people in D.C. would describe them. If we're not in Afghanistan, then the Chinese will be. That's what the Soviet Union said. If we're not in 
Afghanistan Americans will be. Right. That's what the British said in the 19th century. If we're not in Afghanistan, the Russians will be. Turns out the Russians never had any plan to invade Afghanistan in the 19th century, but the British invaded Afghanistan at least three times because of that. I mean, so I think it's important to tie ourselves to history, to understand how the same things keep unfolding. One of the things I think is important, too, is that, look, Joe Biden was in office. He was a U.S. senator when the Vietnam War ended. Just because something happened 50 years ago doesn't mean that our people who are in power making these decisions aren't the legacies of that. Right. Just as I described the Afghan War as being a living legacy of the Cold War, it still exists. Take a man like Donald Rumsfeld. He was the Secretary of Defense when the uh, Vietnam War ended. Yeah. I had this experience one time when I was in the Marine Corps, and Donald Rumsfeld came up to me, and he pointed at a portrait of Eisenhower that myself and a friend were standing in front of. And he said, you know how old I am? I'm so old, I used to work with that guy. You know, And so you can understand that. man who was in char- charge of the Defense Department was in charge of the Defense Department at the end of Vietnam, had worked with Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was old enough to have known and worked with Civil War veterans. I mean, so we're not actually that far removed from history. So to think that what occurred in the 1970s in Afghanistan, what occurred in the 1980s in Afghanistan, what occurred in the 1990s doesn't have repercussions now is one of the reasons why I think that the media coverage and people's understanding of the war is so very basic, is so limited. Certainly there's a legacy to this. There are events that occurred. There are reasons for this. Why would the Taliban have such popular support from the Afghan people? Maybe there's a history to it. Look, in this country, we talk about if anyone was to say to any of us that the Civil War is a forgotten relic of American history and doesn't influence current culture, politics, society, whatever, we would say you're absolutely crazy. Right. We have a media that reports about Afghanistan as if only what has occurred within the last week or the last month matters. Right. Take just for example, the Doha Agreement signed between the Taliban and the United States was signed in February 2020. That was almost 18 months ago. There has been very little media discussion about what happened in those 18 months when negotiations were supposed to be occurring between the Taliban and the Afghan government. It's almost as if that time doesn't factor or matter. The reporting will say basically Doha agreement signed February 2020, May 1st, 2021, Biden says we're pulling troops out. No discussion whatsoever about, well, how come nothing occurred? Why weren't negotiations successful? What prompted this to uh, play out this way, where the Taliban, in my opinion, basically said, hey, we've given you 18 months to negotiate. We're just going to take it now. Yeah. And, you know, as well as to just that type of discussion where the Taliban have agency, you know, where the Taliban need to be understood as an army and a political organization that is not the narrative we have of these troglodytes in caves. And so when we're going to hear, as we're going to hear, as we move towards September 11th, we need to um, begin bombing again because terrorism, we have to hold in our mind that things are more complicated, but that our role is fairly simple in terms of saying, no, we're not bombing for peace is is not going to work. Absolutely correct. And I I think 
there's a lot of, of very good evidence, very clear evidence that bombing for peace does not work. Uh, look, we mentioned earlier that al-Qaeda was 400 people total on 9-11, total worldwide. And because of the U.S. response to the 9-11 attacks, al-Qaeda grew into an organization of tens and tens of thousands of members. They expanded to a presence around the world uh, where they had the fighting capability to take over and control entire cities and regions. We now have the Islamic State as a consequence of that. So anyone who thinks that the United States' war against terror has been successful because of the occupations of Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, simply is either foolish or is lying about it, because how can anyone look at what happened with al-Qaeda international terror groups and say that they have been defeated over the last 20 years? They may at this point not be as capable as they previously were, but they have not been defeated and they have benefited greatly from the American response to 9-11. I mean, just another quick you know, data point on that. In 2001, the United States State Department said there were four international terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Last year, the United States State Department and the U.S. military said that there are 20 international terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So by pursuing this policy in Afghanistan, by pursuing this war, you know, as well as the war that was conducted in Pakistan as well, where tens and tens of thousands of people were killed, you've seen terror groups increase by a factor of five. How can anyone say that this has been successful? But what we have seen, though, is we have seen an evolution of American warfare that tries to hide the cost of war from the American people, and that will allow these wars to continue because I think most Americans are, are not aware that since 9-11, U.S. troops have in at least 15 countries, not just Iraq and Afghanistan, but 15 countries have been killed and have killed in combat since 9-11. But most of that is hidden from the American public, and that's a very deliberate thing that the U.S. government, military, and CIA does. Well, we'll be taking this up with you, I'm sure, further in the future. For now, we've been speaking with Matthew Ho of the Center for International Policy and the Eisenhower Media Network. His piece, What Critics of the U.S. Withdrawal from Afghanistan Get Wrong, appears on CNN.com. And A Cruel and Unjust Peace for Afghanistan can be found on Newsweek.com. Thank you so much, Matthew Ho, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you by FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, the Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.